If you wanted a visual for what Eagle Church is really all about, how about that one right there in front of you? We're about three things around here, discipleship, missions, and next generation. And those 32 folks in Guatemala for the last six days going through Colossians, learning about living everyday life with Jesus. If you want to know what Eagle's really all about, I think what you just saw up here, the next generation doing something about the least resourced and least reached in our world and doing it in the context of living everyday life with Jesus. That's what we're all about around here. And uh, I'm so grateful to be a part of a body that invests this deeply. And not only do we have 32 folks in Guatemala this week, we sent 12 more off to Cambodia. So I don't know if you're following all the Facebook feeds and um, Instagram posts from Cambodia team. We got 12 folks over there doing something about child trafficking with Remember News Ministry in Cambodia. I understand half their bags got there, which is a bonus when you go to Cambodia that 50% of your luggage arrived. Um, but I understand the team's doing well and they're on it all week long. And then it's not just about the nations. It's also about doing something here locally. Next Sunday, I'm going to be interviewing Allie King and we're going to be talking about what God's doing on the near West side and, uh, the youth for Christ ministry called city life. So you're not going to want to miss that interview. There's some really cool things going on and what we can do as a church to make a difference in our own city. It's got plenty of needs. So it's about right. Both. And it's about the neighborhoods and the nation's. And uh, as well, I think a couple of your families, I got an email from Tina Remender. She's taken her family down to help out the Indy Alliance, the inner city church on the near east side doing a VBS this week. And I think some of you as families have signed up to go down and help an inner city congregation lead a VBS. It's a lot different than leading a VBS in Zionsville. Are you with me? So it's about doing all of those things and, and, and for the sake of discipleship, missions, and next generation. So grateful to be a part of it. Open up your Bibles, Genesis chapter 45. We're here wrapping up our series on, the, on Joseph, the life of Joseph. We've been in it through the summer. And so some of you have been asking me, stopping me at random places like, hey, you left us hanging, you left us hanging. Well, today we're going to wrap up the story and see about an amazing family reunion. You wonder where this end point was going to come. Well, today we're going to bring it home that way. I want you to turn to the person next to you, whether you know them or not, and I want you to take a guess at the average number of times a child laughs per day. How many times does a child laugh per day? All right, you got that number? 400 times per day. Now there's a great, hey, there's a great pitch for why you should serve in children's ministry right there. <laughs> a lot more fun than serving in adult ministry because turn to the person next to you and guess the average number of times an adult laughs per day. The average adult laughs 15 times per day. 400 for the children, 15 for the adults. I read a story years ago about a young boy who was standing at the bottom of an escalator. And he was just staring at the rail on the escalator. And this woman walks up thinking the boy is lost and needing some help. She walks up and she says, do you need some help? Are you lost? He looks up, says, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. And he just goes back to staring at the rail. She's like, are you sure? You sure you're okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just waiting for my gum to come around. There you go. You got one out of your 15 for the day and laughing. So we're at the point in the storyline with Joseph where his gum has come around on the escalator rail. Because we left him off in the middle of a famine. 
Remember, the Israelites are hungry. Why? Because after seven years of abundant harvest, the fields went barren. Because there's going to be seven years of famine. A couple years into the famine, the people of God, the Israelites, are hungry. And they send a little entourage down to Egypt because Egypt's the only place with food. And Egypt stockpiled their grain from the seven years of abundance in these big warehouses. And there's a leader over the food distribution network. You want to guess who that leader is? His name's Joseph. And he's there. And he's overseeing the distribution of all this food. And then these young Israelites... Want to guess who the young Israelites were? They were the 11 brothers who sold him into slavery, tossed him down in a cistern. They come begging for food. Now, Joseph's garbed in such a way that there's no way they could recognize him. And the other context is they had no idea that Joseph would become like the vice president of Egypt. So there was way, it was just like out of context and they didn't think it was him. So Joseph knows who they are. They don't know who he is. And they have a dialogue. And they're looking for food, and Joseph's thinking, I want to see Benjamin, the youngest of the brothers left. Why? Because he's the blood biological brother with Joseph. So Joseph wants Benji to come. Dad didn't send Benjamin with all the rest. Why? Because he thinks Joseph's dead, and now Benjamin's wearing like the coat of many colors. He's like the favored son. So it's like, hey, all you other 10 sons, you might get wiped out, but at least I've got Benji still at home kind of thing. And so... Joseph says, hey, if you want food, here's the deal. You need to bring the whole clan back, and you need to bring Benji with you. And that's where we left him off at the story. So we're going to pick it up there because this is a family reunion that I don't think anyone but God could have foreseen, including Joseph himself. Chapter 45, verse 1. Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, And he cried out. So the brothers are now with him, with Benjamin. They've come back because they want food. And they're all standing before him. And Joseph cries out, have everyone leave my presence. So there's no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. It was the true, like, speechless term here. Verse 4, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. Can you picture that scene? Get a little closer. Like, stare me right in the eyes here. Look beyond the makeup. Look beyond the robe. Look beyond the headdress. Look at me. When he had done this, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one who you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. First key phrase of the day. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. So this is how we know how old Joseph is in the story. Remember, he gets out of prison at age 30. There's seven years of abundant harvest, so that puts him at 37. There's two years now of famine. He's two years into the famine. Puts him at 39, rounded up 40-ish. So he's around 40 years old now. Remember, how old was he when he had the dream? 17. So it gives you a little timeline on the journey. So he's about 40 now. Verse 7. But God sent me ahead of you, second key phrase, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great 
deliverance. So then, next key phrase, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household, and ruler of all of Egypt. So God knew he had to get his man into leadership in Egypt. Why? Because he had to preserve the remnant, the nation of Israel. Why? Because eventually the Messiah would come through the nation of Israel. Back to Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic covenant. God's going to build a people. He's going to build a nation. And that nation is going to flourish. It's going to go through glimpse, descent, breakthrough. And Israel's gone through a lot of those seasons. They're in a descent season now. It's famine. They're hungry. God's like, I got to get someone in Egypt to handle the food supply so my people, the Israelites, will be taken care of. I got my man. I got Joseph. Joseph thought he's ready at 17. God says you're ready at 30. 13-year difference of opinion. We talked about that, right? So here's Joseph thinking he's ready at 17. Got a dream. She's bowing down. All these people bowing before him, coming his presence. At 30, now the dream is coming to fruition. And how does God know he's got his man and the interior work that's been necessary to uphold the responsibility and authority? How do we know that work's been done pretty well? There's a a deepening, a thickening of the beams of his interior world. How do we know that? Those phrases I had you underlined there in your Bibles, right? In verse five, when he says, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. There's Joseph's perspective on the journey. That's his perspective on the descent. He got a glimpse of leadership. He had a 13-year descent, tossed into a cistern, sold on a wagon ride, uh, kind of betrayed by Potiphar's wife, forgotten in jail, enduring a famine, descent, descent, descent. What's his perspective? God was in it. He sent me ahead to save some lives. Verse seven, God sent me ahead of you. Verse eight, it was not you who did all this and sent me here, but God did it. That's how you know God's got the right man in the right place for the right time to handle the stewardship of the leadership and responsibility entrusted to him. So two observations from this chapter this morning for our lives. The first one is this. I think as we step back now and look over the horizon of this whole story, I think we could conclude when it appears that life is spiraling out of control, we can stay firmly anchored to a God who is squarely in control. Or to say it another way, when you're journeying through a bunch of stuff that doesn't make sense, when you're walking through things you don't know, you stay anchored, you stay firmly grounded in what you do know while you walk through what you don't know because there's a whole bunch of questions that Joseph had in his long descent that God never really answered the specific questions why I'm sure he's crying out there. It's just that as he lived his life, in the living, he gained understanding. There's stuff that makes sense in chapter 42 to 45 that absolutely made no sense in chapter 37 to 41. Some of you might be in 37 to 41. Here's what you need to know from Joseph's story. 42 to 45 is coming. What doesn't make sense right now, it's probably going to make a lot more sense down the road. I don't know how far down the road. For Joseph, it was 13 plus years for his down the road. Because when you look back on the storyline of Joseph's life, I hope it's an encouragement to you as it is to me. If God could weave together the winding mess of his life, are you kidding me? If God can weave together a bunch of brothers selling him out, tossing him in a cistern, placing him on a wagon headed to who knows where, going back and telling dad he's dead, and then Potiphar drafting him in as a slave, and then Mrs. Potiphar betraying, kind of selling him out, tossing him in jail, and then the butler forgetting him for a couple of years, and then famine. If God can weave the winding mess of Joseph's life together and center it in his eternal purposes, then gang, 
There is no winding path beyond his redemptive reach that we're on. There's no wait that's so long that he can't redeem and restore and make it worth it. There's no purpose that's in the dark right now that can't be brought out into the light at some point. And Joseph's story ought to breathe encouragement into us that way. Hey, it looks like everything's spiraling out of control. I hold on to what Joseph's story teaches me is, you know what? Yeah, from my perspective, it feels out of control. But here's what I know. God is working out his eternal purposes. Even when the story's going descent, descent, down, down. Even when it's 37 to 41. Someday, 42 to 45 is coming, and I take encouragement in that, and I hope you do as well. So verse 9, let's pick it up here. What happens next? So Joseph says, now hurry back to my father. So it's just the brothers there, Benji included now. Hurry back and get my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. Now, Goshen is like a northeast corridor of modern-day Egypt. So if you look at a map today, if you looked at Egypt, if you look at the northeast section, that's Goshen. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Do you see God's preservation act there? That's why you had to get Joseph there. He's like, hey, I got to take care of you. You're all going to die because of the famine. But now you're all going to live in the land of Egypt under my care because God sent me ahead of you. There's the, oh, we didn't see that one coming. They thought they were just tossing him into a cistern and sell him on a wagon ride. God's like, I can use that winding mess. I'll get him from the wagon ride in the bottom of the cistern to VP of Egypt. If God can do that, then gang, there's nothing he can't do with our winding messes that we get in the middle of too. Verse 12, you can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. You see him blinking, look past it, it's me, it's really Joseph, I'm your brother. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you've seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, I love this, his brothers talked with him. Ha, I bet they did. If you're his brothers, what do you want to talk about? I mean, like, first thing they probably said is like, dude, that is a sweet robe you've got on. That's got way more swag than dad's robe ever had that he gave you. I mean, he's garbed up, sitting on the throne. I bet his brothers ask, like, Joe, hey, like, what happened on the wagon? We put you on the wagon ride. Where did you end up after you ended on the wagon? And then it'd be like, hey, Joe, I bet you're feeling a tinge of temptation to kind of lay it on us. Like, you could make our life really miserable. Like, you could toss us in multiple cisterns. Picture some of the dialogue they'd be having. Like, hey, Joe, help us understand. What have you been doing? How did you get here? Who in the world appointed you to this office? And what's it like for a bunch of Egyptians to report to you, a Hebrew kid? Can you picture the dialogue they're having? Of course they want to talk to him. And this is my second observation from the story First one is when everything's spiraling out of control, I think we can stay anchored to a God is in control. Second observation for today is God's gonna come through, but the journey's probably gonna be longer and more uncomfortable than we prefer. Can you see Joseph sitting on the kind of the throne area of the VP office when his 
dad and his brothers and all the extended family like roll in from their hundreds of miles of journey, which would have been quite uh, sweaty and dirty. It's kind of, it was a scene for me. It was like, now those of you who are older are going to follow, Beverly Hillbillies. You guys remember that? Students, you had no idea what I'm talking about. It's okay. Just ask your mom and dad. But you know, it's like the Beverly Hillbillies rolling in to Hollywood in their ragtag group. That's kind of what's like the Israelites rolling into the center of the Egyptian palace with this ragtag, all their livestock, all their extended family. And there's Joseph there. And I just see him kind of smiling and probably looking up to the heavens and going, God, only you, only you could have written a script like this. There's no possible way Joseph could have envisioned this being the end point. All those time, all those months that went by in the jail cell, all the wondering about what it means for the dream to be fulfilled, all the wrestling, mat, it's all now become, he's, here he's looking at all this family, all the livestock, all the cousins, extended kids, all the people he's never met. <laughs> and Joseph's the one making sure they're gonna be cared for. It reminded me of a, a dialogue I read years ago I put it in your notes. Orson Scott Card, he wrote a book called Ender's Shadow. Here's the dialogue in the book. Do you know why Satan is so angry all the time? Because whenever he works a particular bit of mischief, God uses it to serve his own righteous purposes. So God uses wicked people as tools? God gives us the freedom to do great evil if we choose. Then he uses his own freedom to create goodness out of that evil, for that is what he chooses. So in the long run, God always wins? Yes. In the short run, though, it can be uncomfortable. In the short run, though, it can be uncomfortable. That strikes to me like an entry Joseph would have written. God always wins in the end. In between... Could be quite uncomfortable. It was three and a half years ago that my wife Kendra got a phone call that I don't think you're ever really prepared to receive. Her brother was calling. Her dad had been struggling with cancer for a number of years, and her brother was calling to say, hey, dad has died. And if you were to ask Kendra about her relationship with her biological father, she would probably say it was distant and difficult for most of her life. Her dad left mom and Kendra and the other siblings when Kendra was 10 and didn't just leave. He like physically left, went 2,000 miles away and kind of spent the rest of his life physically distant. And Kendra did her best to try to cultivate a relationship. If those of you can identify with that, trying to cultivate a relationship with a parent who's 2,000 miles away. And so the years went, she spent some summers down there and she tried to do her best to kind of work through, but it was always just never quite what it was supposed to be, always just kind of difficult and complicated. And, and then when it came to the end and her dad passed away, um, she just said to the girls after the phone call, she says, hey, I'm just gonna go up to the bedroom and I just need some quiet space. And she had her Bible and she just spent time with Jesus. You know, there's some phone calls we receive in life, right? Where the only rightful response is, I need to talk to Jesus. Not that people can't be helpful, but you know what I'm saying? There's some times when, before I really talk to anyone else, I 
I need to talk to Jesus. And as the tears kind of streamed down her cheeks, she said there in the bedroom that she just kind of poured out some of the, just the pain and the heartache and the regrets, the whatabouts and the if onlys and what could have beens and just feeling the kind of the ending of it all and it just was left unfinished. Anybody felt that before where you're just like, ah. And she said in the midst of all that, she just sensed the Lord just saying to her very quietly, you know, the next time you see him, because her dad did die in Jesus, the next time you see him, it will all be healed. And your relationship will be as it was supposed to be. Boy, how encouraging is that? She said that carried her through the whole funeral. She's sitting there through the funeral and dealing with all the family dynamics that come with funerals like that. And she said she's sitting there and just over and over again, she just felt like the Lord saying, hey, Saul healed. And the next time you see him, it'll be the way it's supposed to be. In the end, God does always win. But in between, it can be really uncomfortable. For Kendra, it'll be, she would say, from age 10 through, you know, her whole life has been just 50, 60, 70 years. For, for, for Joseph, it was 13 years. For Jesus, it was three days from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. For the church of Jesus, as we live out in our culture today, and as the news feed keeps scrolling the latest stories that cause us as a people, do you not long and groan even more for Jesus to come? Come back, Lord Jesus. Right? You see the, the world spiraling away in its different places, and you go, how much more pain? How much more heartache? How much more patience can you endure? It's the definition of God and his long-suffering. When you look at the condition of our humanity on this globe, and you see the incredible patience he has, right? For more to come to redemption, for more to find saving grace, for more to come to life. He waits long-suffering, and his people groan. We cry out, come, Lord Jesus. You know, it's been 2,000 years. Years. Jesus ascended into the heavens, Acts chapter 1. What did he say when he ascended? I will come back. In the same way you see me go, I will return. And we as a people, we're living in the in-between, in the not yet. Do you know what groans from the soul? It's the groans of the not yet. It's been 2,000 years. It may be 2,000 more. It may be tomorrow. We're one day closer today than we were yesterday. That's all we know. Jesus said, don't be distracted. I'm trying to figure it out. But it's the waiting, right? Could be 50, 60, or 70 years for some of you in this life where there's a whole bunch of if-onlys and whatabouts and things that you just can't sort out. The descent, and it's not making sense, and the breakthrough hasn't come. And maybe it won't come until you take your last breath here. And Jesus said it's guaranteed in glory. Breakthrough is guaranteed for those who die in Jesus. Heaven's going to set everything wrong that's right. And in between here and there, it could be 13 years. It could be 50 years. It could be three days. It could be two millennia. But in between all that, we look at Joseph's storyline. And what do we hold on to? When everything looks like it's spiraling out of control, here's what we anchor ourselves to. God is in control. And if he can take the winding mess of Joseph's life and do something like this that we see here, then he can take the winding mess of our lives. 
and our families and our churches and even our own nation, the winding mess of it all, and weave it together for something that's in the center of his eternal purposes. And he can do it in such a way where everyone will look upon it, much like I'm guessing they did with Joseph's story and say, that could only be God. But in between, it could get quite uncomfortable. And we hold on to this, that one day, you know, we're going to be like that little kid at the bottom of the escalator. And one day, the gum's going to come around. And the thing you've been praying for, the thing you've been hoping for, dreaming about, and it's our destiny, gang, not our history or our current reality that are to be the grounds of our identity. We're a destiny-oriented people of Jesus. And we let where we're going, not where we've been or where we are, be the grounds of our hope. Because if you let where you've been or where you are be the grounds of your hope, you're going to be left lots and lots of groaning. But here's where the hope comes. You put your eyes on where Jesus said this whole story's going. And Joseph's story gives us a little preview, right? Someday, we'll be escorted into the courts and all that was wrong and all that didn't make sense, it all gets sorted out. And like his brothers and like his family and like his dad, can you imagine Jacob going, Lord, I didn't see that one. All the heartache of years he spent, he thought Joseph was dead for all those years. And the sadness that came with that, and then he's looking at his son, vice president of Egypt, handling the care of all this. I'm sure he tucked his kids into bed. I'm sure he tucked his grandkids into bed. I'm sure he led some family devotional discussions about the sovereignty of God. When it looks like it's over, it's never over until God says it's over. And when it looks like it's out of control, God's still in control. And when it looks like nothing could be redeemed out of this, God can still redeem something out of it. But it could be longer and much more uncomfortable than we prefer. And so Joseph and his family, they take root in Egypt. They settle down there. This is where the book of Genesis ends. It ends with a group of Israelites uprooting from their homeland, the land of Canaan, and going to the land of Egypt and putting their flocks and herds and their people, and they begin to multiply, and they grow, and they're provided for, and they flourish, and it's going really, really well. And the brothers are kind of waiting for the shoe to drop. They're waiting for Joseph to get to the point where he's ready to kind of have his day, kind of have his get back at you for what you did to me. And so in chapter 50, and I close our series with these words, he gathers his brothers around him because he can detect that his brothers are increasingly nervous that Joseph's somehow going to have it in for him. And in this, he gives us his kind of parting perspective on the story. Joseph says to all his brothers, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That's how we know God got his man, a young Israelite raised in brokenness, to the vice president's seat, caring for his eternal purposes. And if God can do that, God can handle all of this. Let's pray.
Jesus, thank you for Joseph. Thank you for preserving the story. Thank you for the many lessons over this summer you've taught us. Thank you for the ways you've encouraged us through perspective, through the ups and downs, for glimpse, descent, and breakthrough. Many in this room living right there in one of those three. So many, even this summer, have experienced descent in ways that are breathtaking. And I pray, Lord, that uh, Joseph's story would be of encouragement, that we'd stay grounded even when it looks like everything's out of control and we can't see how possibly anything could be redeemed out of it. Uh, Remind us that you get the final word. And with the final word, the gum's going to come around on that escalator rail. And in the end, God's going to say, I win. And then would you give us great endurance and strength and patience and grace for the long periods of in-between when it gets really uncomfortable. Strengthen us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.